0: Welcome to the Poets and Philosophers podcast. I'm A. Peters, a part-time preacher and freelancer. And I'm Sam, a preacher and PhD student. And we respect the great tradition. We're also brothers. Each week, we take a topic or author in the great tradition and explore the ideas for their own sake and how Christians can benefit them. If you're someone who loves philosophy, old books, ancient ideas, and God, you should subscribe. Today, we discuss education and teaching. One of the uh, ways that many much education is done today, whether it's in a business setting or in school, is the simple lecture. And the lecture is a very effective way of teaching. It's a simply a teacher who is at the center stage, who imparts the knowledge to the students, and the students write down, memorize, and get that information then to move on to the next thing. And this can be very effective, but one of the Weaknesses of this approach is that there is not a whole lot of engagement. Um, You can be uh, on your phone with a Bluetooth uh, controller playing Mario while your teacher is lecturing, as I have done in a few college classes. But if your teacher chooses to use what's known as the Socratic method, There's no room for that because your teacher is going to engage you immediately by asking you different kinds of questions. So let's talk about this Socratic method, its relation to teaching, and why it's helpful for us as uh, thinkers and teachers even to use this method. So Sam, tell us a little bit about um, the Socratic method and how it relates to teaching as well as um, even how Jesus taught as well.
1: So the Socratic method is based on dialogue more than monologue. It is uh, a conversation between both the student and the teacher. Uh, last week in college, we actually looked at the Euthyphro. Um, it's one of the plays or the the dialogues of uh, between Socrates and a man named Euthyphro. And throughout this dialogue, which I think it's a good example of what a Socratic dialogue is, throughout this dialogue. You have Plato who questions Euthyphro on what impiety or what piety means. Euthyphro is at the court. He's ready to try his father for murder. And Socrates is like, this is insane. I cannot believe you're going to do something so impious as to uh, try your dad for murder. And Socrates is there at trial because he is being taken to court for corrupting the youths. Anyways, he's like, okay, Euthyphro, if you teach me what impiety and piety is, then I can maybe get out of my court case as well. And Euthyphro, who thinks he's brilliant, he, he actually refers to himself in the third person. He thinks that he has like knowledge complete in his own mind. And Socrates says, hey, please teach me. What is piety? What is impiety? And throughout the dialogue, Socrates questions him. Um, I'm not sure if this is maybe a good example, but me and Abe, we used to play soccer. And you know how you let the person uh, uh, dribble in front of you? And the moment they make a mistake, you go and attack it. That's kind of what Socrates does. He, he contains, he, he, he allows you to make some move until he notices something in your reasoning that is wrong. And then he makes his attack and says, no, 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 that doesn't make sense. Explain that. And ultimately, the end of the dialogue. It's called aporia, or you have some of Plato's dialogues. They're aporetic dialogues, and it is where aporia, I think, is the Greek term for uh, uh, bringing someone to an impasse, bringing someone to, to, to perplexity, to where they don't really realize where they got to, and they don't know how to get themselves out. That's what Socrates wants to do. That's what the Socratic method is great about. And the reason why you'd want to do this is because many people have dogmatic positions that they've not thought through, and Socrates is going to help you think through them. He's going to nudge you out of your dogmatic slumber, uh, and hopefully at the end of it, you will be at a state of perplexity and humility. And um, the euthyphro is one of those aporetic dialogues where at the end of it, me as the reader, I actually don't know what impiety or piety means. It is quite difficult. And then he makes me as a reader become a participant in the dialogue, so I leave the dialogue thinking, "Well, what does impiety mean? Now now you know the burden of um I don't know, intellectual struggle, struggle, <laughs> the burden of intellectual struggles. struggle is on me. And uh, Oh, by the way, I think that some people think the ending of Mark is like this, where it just has the women saying nothing, and some people think that it ends there in aporia, so that it causes the believer or uh, non-believer-believing reader to become self-actual and make a decision on what they believe. Anyways, um, Abe, how would you define the Socratic method?
0: Yeah, the Socratic method is you know, tough to define in of itself, but it's a way of teaching that involves a lot of engagement and questioning. I like your analogy with um, containing a player in soccer till they make a mistake and then going after it. Um, uh, most people, when they have, when they believe something and they have something made up in their mind, um, as soon as they start to like verbalize it, and explain it they begin to realize they don't actually know what they think they just thought they did this happens you know a lot you know you might read a book and you've got some really awesome idea or you might listen to a podcast and you have this really awesome idea um by the way you should subscribe to this podcast to get more stuff uh but you're thinking through this and then you go to speak it and it's like i have no idea what i actually am talking about um this method of teaching helps Get get away from that and helps you to really figure out what you do think about things. So it is a a method of teaching that uses a lot of questioning and um, your teacher has to be really good to do this. You have to be actually better than just a simple lecturer to get through this because um, you have to understand logical fallacies and not only that, but you have to do it in such a way that keeps the person who is engaged in the conversation coming back for more. Um, because if you're somebody who's really good at logical fallacy, I remember, um, I was on debate team for like one, like one debate session and my opponents kept going, well, this is a logical fallacy because it's, you know, I don't know, this is poisoning the well. This is a logical fallacy because it's, uh, I can't even think of a logical, those off the top of my head right now, but because of this or because of that, it was like, who wants to argue with somebody that just keeps going like that? It's really annoying to do that. So you have to be a good teacher to um, do that. And I think those scriptures can do that sometimes. Like you were mentioning the Gospel of Mark. Um, I think Luke chapter uh, 15 is one with a parable of the prodigal son where you don't really know if the older brother goes inside or not. Um, The book of Jonah as well does this where God simply asks Jonah after he destroys the tree there, you know, shouldn't I have more compassion on these people that don't know their right hand from their left and it just like ends so that is a way of teaching because it's like uh, how does it end like tell me how that ends you know so it's a very it's very effective way of teaching and i think what it helps too like you were saying i love that idea that it helps us get rid of uh or see past our own dogmatisms that we might have which they may be true but that's not the point the point is do you it enough to where you can show that it is true you know uh, this is about showing your work like you had to do in math when you were a kid so that that's why i really really like that um but uh i will say that jesus did this very well in a number of instances when he would talk with people jesus was hardly somebody who um he was hardly somebody who was gave straightforward answers uh, he did many times, you know, with his speeches and stuff. But when he was in a one-on-one conversation, he was very uh, indirect and subversive sometimes. It was really tough to know what exactly Jesus believed. But that wasn't the point. The point wasn't to show you what he believed. The, sh- the point was to get you to see him as the Christ. And so, Sam, one of the things we should talk a little bit about is how Jesus would use this method a lot and one of the ways that he did that? So what are ways that you see um, him using this method?
1: Yeah, so uh, with what is the end of Jesus' dialogue? What does he want? Does he want people who know facts? Or does he want people to become self-actual and have faith? Uh, so with the, the girl with the hemorrhage, right? When she touches uh, Jesus' garment, he asks her, you know, hey, uh, who touched me? And he's wanting to evoke uh, faith. One way, Another way that Jesus does that beyond just questions is the parables. So, Jesus, today there is, I think, a pretty common um, belief that parables are merely memorable. They're earthly stories of heavenly reality, something like that. Um, actually, Jesus' answer is a little bit different of why he actually used parables. In the Old Testament, in the Septuagint version... Uh, parables with Hebrew parallelism, parables were talked as uh, uh, riddles um, in Ezekiel 17 two, uh one common conception or one uh, maybe it's a common misconception of a parable is that it is a earthly story of a heavenly reality, which is true to a certain extent, but they were also meant to perplex to to baffle the 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 listeners or even the readers of today in psalm 78 verse 2 in the uh septuagint it it talks about how i will open my mouth in a parable and i will utter dark sayings of old so they're they're very perplexing they're they're almost uh they're, they're riddles and even the old testament talks about parables being riddles so jesus spoke in parables to not only reveal the truth to soft hearts but really to conceal the truth to hard hearts and riddles were a way where jesus would talk and it would make people uh grope for the meaning to even the extent the disciples and even the crowds got frustrated thankfully the disciples were the one to actually go and ask jesus hey what did that mean but they would become frustrated with jesus come on just tell it to us straight and jesus isn't about that and that's that should be, I guess, formative for our teachings um, about what we really want. Is it just facts and information or is it uh, a, a new moral way of living, a, a way of life? And uh, even other ways that Jesus teaches, not just parables, but, you know, saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees or eat my flesh, drink my blood to where you have the disciples like this is ridiculous. You have to stop. Uh, this is, you know, this is cannibalism. Um, So Jesus, I think he he taught Socratically in that he asked questions, he said hard things, and he also used parables to speak about the kingdom.
0: Yeah, he he did this thing where um, he didn't give you what you wanted, and that really would frustrate people um, to the point where some of them got really mad at him, like you were saying, or some of them just stopped listening to him. Um, but there's a purpose in that. There wasn't a sort of thing, you know, some people can use this method because they actually have nothing to say and it's just a way of, you know, packing time and a way of just looking like a a sophist, somebody who has nothing actually to say, but just simply uses rhetoric. So it can be dangerous in that where, you know, all those people that are like, I'm just asking questions, you know, I just, I don't know. And I just... It's just we just need to have a conversation about this, and it's like, well, you know, um, let's have a conversation. But you know, you should be somebody who who is a you know, I think the uh, Plato he called himself like a midwife to truth. Was that how he phrased it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. he was a midwife
1: of truth, the myedic method. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so he is. He's not gonna do it himself, but he's gonna let his students um stumble through the darkness and he's going to be this guide that helps them come out of the cave, he would say, into the light. And I think Jesus was doing the same thing with people. Um, I think John's gospel in the beginning shows this and Sam showed the like kind of the end point in John chapter six, but chapter three and chapter four, he has these one-on-one conversations with either the uh, Nicodemus or the woman at the well. And he's not very straightforward with them. In fact, he throws them both off guard at first to Nicodemus. He says, you know, unless a man be born of uh, his mother, uh, I mean, unless a man be born again, he shall not enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus has no idea what to think of that. And they have a conversation about it. But it was a very prodding conversation that helped Nicodemus see some things. Um, till in the end of his gospel, he is the one who comes to Jesus with... uh with some burial, uh, ointment and stuff. Um, yeah, Sam, what were you going to say?
1: Yeah. So you said earlier, uh, that Jesus wasn't the kind of guy to give you what you wanted. Um, I do think that Jesus would give you what you want if you wanted what you needed. So Jesus wasn't the kind of person to just, um, just, Uh, he wasn't so contrary to even people who wanted spiritual bread. He wasn't like, I'm not going to get, you know, it was very like, I know what you need. I'm going to give you what you need. You're probably going to be upset because you think you need something else. You want something else, but I'll give you what you need. And, uh, you see that time and time again in the gospel of John, people want someone who's going to become King. Someone wants someone who's going to do miracles. Someone wants someone who's going to talk straight to them. Um, and Jesus is like, nope, that's not me. You can walk away if you want to. Um, I, I'm going to give you something else and you're going to be perplexed by it.
0: Yes. Um, for those who are the humble and the contrite, Jesus did give them exactly what they were searching for. Um, but for those people who wanted Jesus to be almost a walking encyclopedia, you know, what does the law say about, um, you know, divorce and what does the law say about this particular problem? Like, he's, he's, he's not going to play that game. What shall I do to inherit eternal life even with that? uh the the ruler there it is a uh back and forth and um depending on which gospel you're reading it's just it doesn't jesus is like all right yeah if you know and he says well okay i've been following i know the greatest commands and i i know these things but um what else am i missing And so jesus tells him what he doesn't want to hear and he 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 walks away um so that was a a moment where jesus would, would use that so, but I will say this, this, he didn't use this all the time. And I think this is where it gets to a problem. But Jesus sometimes would be very direct, almost to a point where like, what are you doing? So one point where he's very direct, I think is Luke eleven twenty-eight, 28, where uh, a woman in the crowd says, oh, blessed is the breast that you nursed from, and you know, when you were a babe. And Jesus says, no, uh, blessed rather are those who hear the word of the Lord and obey it. And it's like. Very direct, you know, you you can't get around that. But it's also, in a sense, it is so startling because he's so direct. Um, And I think that in and of itself is a way to wake people up because of the directness. So um, he was very much into getting people to engage with what he is saying, not just simply um, saying uh, things that are true, which is important. But as teachers, we recognize that most people – need to jump into the conversation. They need some sort of bite to get in and, and talk about it. And that takes, that takes some goading and it takes some teasing uh, to, to, to do that. So let's talk a little bit about that as far as why uh, curiosity and why engagement is so helpful uh, to learning. In fact, Plato in The Republic uh, writes that, uh, I think through Socrates, the one who is willing to taste every kind of learning with gusto. And who approaches learning with delight, is insatiable. We shall justly assert to be philosopher, won't we? And so, somebody who is a philosopher in the sense that he is, he wants to learn about all kinds of things, and he's not, um, he's not somebody who just learns his subject and then stops learning. You know, it's like the uh, third grade teacher who gets a fourth grade education and then just stops. You know, there's always gonna, you're always going to have to be learning and, and learning new things. And why is that so important, Sam, as a teacher to be somebody who is curious, but also as a student as well?
1: Yeah. Even when you think about what a disciple is. So a disciple is a, a learner, right? A student um, and disciples make disciples. So a learner is also someone who teaches. And we always need to become we need to remain or at least become if we are not remain if we are uh, curious, learners. Uh, And that's really people think that the beginning of education is curiosity, where really that's even the end as well, that we need to be people who who want to be curious, who are curious about what God has created and be curious about God's own nature. You know, the more that you study, the more that you realize how much you don't know. And I think that's, this is like the imposter syndrome where whenever you learn some kind of discipline a, a little bit, you realize how many, how much to this uh, branch of knowledge there is to know and how you're pretty much unworthy to be part of this branch of knowledge. I'm not sure, you know, if I remember feeling that like this back at um, college where I knew that there was so much to the Bible. I didn't feel like I knew it that well, you know, what a Pharisee was, what a Sadducee was, uh, what an Essene was, just these different people. And it's only a matter of, you know, time where people are going to find out that I really don't know that much. And even, I guess now at a PhD, people may think, you know, Sam, but you, you're so confident in how much you know. I'm I'm sure you're... Um, you understand a lot more about, I guess, the world. I'm not sure if that's what people say about me. But it's at the point where it's just like, no, I, I feel very insecure. I feel the more I know, the more I know how much I don't know. And I, I think that's, that's probably a good feeling. I think that imposter syndrome is not a, that bad. I mean, hopefully it's never going cripple to cripple or hopefully it's not going to paralyze someone. But it's good to know uh, how much there is to know, even though that you don't know it right now so i think curiosity having a posture that is humble and that seeks knowledge is is really good and i think that we as christians should never be people who are so proud of everything we don't know we actually stop learning Um, especially as teachers because you know uh, i think um I forget who wrote the book, but it's The Seven Laws of Learning, maybe. Or Teaching to Change Lives by Howard something. Um, He says that, Hendrix, yeah. He said that I want my students to drink from a a flowing stream rather than a stagnant pool. And there is something about being alive. And if you're learning as a teacher, you're going to be alive. And that's curiosity. And that's ultimately where we want to get our students is to become curious where they leave – the classroom, not so thankful for their handful of notes, but who go directly to the library
0: to find out, you know, what, what was just referenced. And that sounds very interesting. Yeah, I think that's a, uh, that's really important. It, the whole curiosity thing is very important, but the thing is, it's like, how do you make somebody curious um, about anything? Because I don't know about you, but I've taught classes where either it's the, a group of high school students, or even a group of adults who simply are just there just to listen to you talk about whatever it is you want to talk about without um, wanting to learn something necessarily new. All they're there is to just confirm what they already believe and, you know, maybe even say why everybody else who doesn't believe this has serious issues. And, um, we, as people who want to teach other people, need to wake people up out of that and even be a little, uh, I don't know the right word, but a little scandalous, a little spicy about the way we go about it even to where it's like, um, you know, I think about uh, our one of the lectures that we had in our uh, the master's program we were both in, that uh, Dr. Gage, where he would just say these wild things, but he would also say, Now I have philosophic immunity and what you meant by that is I can say things and I can put on different perspectives that I'm going to take, but you actually don't know what I believe about a certain subject. The reason why I do that is so that you think for yourself and you're not just going to parrot whatever your teacher thinks because you have to think for yourself Um, and that's uh, a benefit to you because that way you can explain things in your own words and be more effective at what you, uh, when you teach others or just even what you, when you uh, talk to others. Um, but developing that curiosity out of people is, is very tough. But one way we can do that is by teasing them a little bit and poking them and prodding them. Not very direct, because most people, they'll just put up a wall or they'll just dismiss it or they'll just walk away. But if you play with it a little bit, with your conversation, um, you can get some people to, to change their, uh, approach to the conversation to where they can begin to actually ask really good questions and, and move the conversation a little bit forward. Um, also, I think that we need to be, we need to
1: create an environment in the classroom where people feel free to fail and to try answers. I, I've been in some classrooms where there's a wrong answer given and it's, Either maybe not laughed at. I'm not sure if I've ever seen. I'm pro- I've probably seen some teacher actually laugh at a student for uh, a ridiculous answer. But also, I think that in either Bible class or in the high school class, a college class, allow people to talk, encourage them, be more excited about their wrong answers than your own right answers, and get them thinking. I think uh, that's. Uh, I think key is. Be approachable, as a, uh, be approachable as a teacher and allow them to talk and be excited
0: about it. And don't be so quick to get to your own notes. Yeah, I think it's a really good point in the difference between in a class that's like a lecture-based versus a Socratic-based class where bad questions are actually really good for that class in a Socratic class, whereas in a lecture class, they're not good because the teacher goes, well, that's wrong. Here's the right answer. We're going to keep moving on forward. Um, Now, a lecturer can actually use that to jump off to why that's not a good answer and explain it and have a really good explanation. But a Socratic teacher will take that question and show the student and help the student conclude that that was actually wrong because they'll bring up other facts and other parts of the discussion that's already taken place. And then at that point, then the student goes, well, yeah, actually, no, I, I take back what I said. Um, in uh, Plato's dialogues, um, in in uh, the Republic, and I remember reading in particular, every time I forget which character they would say it was probably Thrasymachus. But basically, you know, I'm going to answer this, and you're not going to be answered this because my answer is just going to be so great and awesome. And uh, Plato would be like, or Socrates would be like, well, you know, I uh, appreciate that answer. I think it's got a lot of good things to say. However, and then he'll like ask one question and Thrasymachus says, I don't like how you take my words and use them against me. And, you know, Thrasymachus in the, in the Republic is not a very, uh, educatable type of person. He's just a bulldozer type of person. But, um, his bad answers actually help the conversation because, um, they show, um, the problems with, with, uh, the way that Thrasymachus would, would talk about um, justice and such. So that was really, really helpful in, in that. So I think it's why it's good to have bad answers and, in those classes. And you're right, it's important for us to have an environment in which they can um, have those bad answers that propel them to make good answers. Because, you know, I think most coaches and, and most um, teachers realize that a, a job that has been poorly done. Um, helps you learn better than if you do the job right the first time like you get to learn a little bit more to succeed later um versus just thinking well i'm i'm perfect at what i do because every time i do it it's just awesome um that's we we have to grow (laughs) at some capacity however though there's that point at which whenever you're doing this so much that you can simply just frustrate your students. And then you got to be really careful about that. And we talked a little bit about that already, but it's really important as we're teaching and as we're, you know, we're talking through this, Sam and I is almost from a teacher's perspective, but I hope you're seeing that this is good even just for a regular conversation. And in fact, a Socratic method is a very conversational approach to teaching. Um, It's not like, I mean, you can you pro- you probably do this with your friends and and your uh, acquaintances without even recognizing that you're using a Socratic method of teaching because it is just you're simply talking and asking questions and trying to move to really clarifying what it is they're trying to say. Um, but there can be uh, a honing of that that's a little bit easier and a little bit better for them to to, to understand what exactly uh, you're doing. But You can be so uh, Socratic or you can be so unsure of what actually is true that you just leave your students. They have no idea what class was even about. Um, I've been in some classes like that where a teacher won't actually say anything um, for like an hour lecture and you're like i have no idea what i was listening to or what they were trying to say or what their questions were about so i talked a little bit about it, and i think you're hitting it too to where it's just overdone um i think a way to do uh an example of this is just a simple style over substance type of thing where you have somebody who you know can ask really good questions but they don't land anywhere and it's just like all we're doing is just imagining things and we're not you know spending time um, talking about what we actually should be talking about. Um, a lot of um, people that are part of like what is known or what was known, I don't know if it's still a thing anymore, as the emergent church movement it had a very heavy um, postmodern take about how to think about the Bible and God. And they were all about the conversation and having conversations. But so much so that um, if you ask them what they believe, they would, would be like, well, I'm not going to be so bold as to say what I believe and this sort of that, cause I'm always learning. And I just, I don't really know. And I'm, you know, I'm still just, I'm still on this, this journey, man, about knowing God. And like, I just want to know, but I, I don't, I don't feel like I, I can say what I know right now. And there's obviously some humility in that, but <laughs> there's a, there's a sense in which it's like you've been thinking about this stuff for how long now and you don't know what to think um you could even you could say what you know right now and be willing to s- retract it later but at least tell me you know what what you do know about a certain subject um I think that's where it can can go pretty bad is where it's just just about asking those questions you know it's like those people that obsess about uh, doubting uh, God you know I just, you know, I just have some of those questions about God and, and I just want to know more and not willing to put their faith anywhere. And I think that's where things can, can go pretty South. Yeah. There's a great quote
1: by GK Chesterton. I'm trying to look for right now where he talks about, um, where you become so passionate and convinced of your uncertainty that you just can't know. And I just don't know. And, uh, it's something about, um, yeah, he quote, he's like, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, and then he talks about – I know it's in the uh,
0: orthodoxy. Um, anyways. Uh. Oh, okay. Uh, so I think last what we want to talk a little bit about is um, some steps in which we can use this approach just in our own lives. Um, that That's very helpful for us. And I think – I've got a few ways that I think that we're – it's very helpful. I think um, most of the time in a one-on-one or just a few people, this is a good approach to use. Uh, I think about um, how dad would um, teach the Bible with people. And like when somebody asked dad a question, you know, what was dad's like first thing he told them to do? Just open the Bible. Go get your Bible. Yeah, yeah. Go get your Bible. Um, because what he would do is he would say, all right, now turn to this passage. Alright, now no read it. <laughs> Alright. What does this passage say? And then he he'd have you do all the explanation, all the doing of things, and and and, and then um he'd go, I know, I'll go to this passage and, and read it and then you tell me what this means. And then he would have people explain it. Um that was that's dad's way of kind of explaining the Bible to a lot of people in a one on one setting. And it's a really good way of uh teaching people the Bible because When it comes to religion, when it comes to the Bible, a lot of people have their dogmatic approach to things that is really hard to get through. But when they're confronted by the text itself and they have to argue against the text on what uh, the position might have been, um, things really can go down because you realize that, well, I really shouldn't argue with what it says. And if it says it so clearly here, um, I really need to rethink my position so i think that's uh, a helpful approach to it as well Um, And in some ways what the socratic method does is it almost creates a sort of story to the conversation where there's this tension in the conversation as far as where it's going to go and that that tension is intriguing you know that's that's why aporia or aporia is so effective is because it hangs the story with like a bunch of tension you're like where is it supposed to land you know it's like hitting that uh you know a suspended something that doesn't resolve a suspended chord that doesn't resolve it's like no no no, land on that major chord i I want this thing to end somewhere and so it helped people to engage to, to help it land um you know it's like um Sometimes the thought of getting tickled with my kids is even more uh, funny than actually getting tickled. You know, if I just like inch my hands really close to their ribs or their armpit, and I go ah, you know, and I act like I'm gonna tickle them, that will even like make them laugh and, and giggle because it just it's so close to it. And so that teasing it engages them like really really well. And now you have their attention, and you can you know go even further with it. And so I think those two places, at least, are places where we can use this sort of way of teaching or interaction with the world that is that is very helpful. So, what are things that you can think of, Sam, as far as uh, using this approach just to just to to your own life?
1: I haven't really thought too much about how we can use this in everyday life. I I do see that. this kind of inductive approach that it is part of life that we we experience life we don't know the conclusion we don't know the end of it and we learn every day and that either supports our conclusions or that actually uh undermines our conclusions but that when you when you i guess yeah if you preach inductively or if you teach inductively you mimic life and i think that that there's a support with that Also, I guess just because I guess we're both preachers and I kind of wonder how many of our listeners are also preachers, but with your sermons, don't just, you know, say the conclusion at the beginning. You know, this is what I'm going to prove. Uh, Here's my conclusion. And let me now go and prove it. Um, I like uh, Eugene Lowry's uh, The Homiletical Plot, and he says the very first step, he calls it upsetting the equilibrium. And you use ambiguities to build tension. And that's exactly what you see on, let's say, House, the, the movie show House, where you see someone playing on a soccer field and he's sick, you know, and you don't really know. And then it goes into the uh, intro, you know, with the, the you know, that, that song. Or if you have the movie uh, Monk you first have some kind of murder and you're not really sure what happens or what's really interesting is, you know, exactly who killed and perhaps monk knows who killed. And you're like, how is this even a story? Like, how are they going to build a whole, you know, uh, the conclusion because all the ambiguity is gone, but then you see how they build it up and it's really good life itself. The answer doesn't come at the beginning. um, and we don't know the end. And I think we can use ambiguity or upsetting the equilibrium or curiosity well by
0: using it to pull people
1: along towards the
0: goal. Um, yeah, so. I th- yeah. I think we didn't get to talk about this. Probably the most famous example of a Socratic method used, not the most famous, but a very famous one in Scripture, is when Nathan the prophet tells David a story about a young A lamb and we as the readers know where he's going with this or maybe maybe you didn't when you read it the first time but you you know where he's going with this but David doesn't know David has just sinned with Bathsheba he's just had Uriah on the front lines to kill him and David just thinks he's hearing this little story about this poor little lamb that a, a rich man came and took from a man and killed it so he could feed his uh friend from a journey and so um Nathan does not end the story with, you are that man, yet after telling the story. He first asks the question, what should be done with this man? And Nathan and David says, well, he should be killed. Um, And Nathan goes, you are the man, and then explains the story. So he gets that bit of engagement, and then he goes home with it. And so I think that is, uh, a good example again of what it looks like using this way of, of teaching it's called the Socratic method um, but it obviously didn't originate with Socrates but he is the one who very much popularized it with his um with his uh, with his uh, dialogues and his in his uh, books and stuff um, which is interesting because that's how the books themselves are uh, Socratic dialogues they're not straightforward like if you were to read Aristotle um, Aristotle is very straightforward you know he is very much the conclusion at the beginning and then he proves it and then he moves on to the next idea but if you read the dialogues of Plato they are conversations and you really don't know where they're going to end and that you know that makes things like a page turner there's that mystery to it um, there is that what is uh, what's going to happen next sort of feeling whenever you're reading these things and that's really great if you can use this in your conversations with people or in your presentations at work, or if you're somebody who's writing a story um, to include that bit of tension to make it work and uh, get people to to think through it. Um, It's a very helpful way of teaching. So, um, And
1: I would say that there's a place for lecture. Obviously, we haven't really talked about that. And I don't think that's the purpose behind this episode. But if you already have some some uh, branch of knowledge that's very relevant. The people are very curious about it. They just want to know. You don't have to make them, you know, uh, make them curious and pull them along. They already want to know. So, even this, just this morning, I had to wake up and read Aristotle's Categories, and it was very difficult because I, I one, it's just a very difficult piece of. Uh, uh, I'm not sure if it's lecture notes or if it's just a monologue, but it's, it's very difficult. And yesterday I read the Fido, and that was much more enjoyable. But in the Gospels, or not in the Gospels, in the New Testament, you have a letter to the Romans by Paul, and that's very philosophical, like a philosophical treatise almost. And I'm sure when that was read in some kind of church, people were already wanting to know, you know who Paul was. I don't believe you know, Paul knew, uh, met them before, but but you also have the gospels where it, it's based on narrative or you have first and second Samuel, which is very, a lot of narrative. Um, so there's definitely a place for lecturing. There's a place for, um, a, a treatise. But if you, if your listeners aren't already interested, you're probably going to have to pull them along. And that is really where the Socratic me- method, um, excels.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, in a regular college class, those students are paying to come to that class and they're looking for that grade. And so a lot of times those teachers, they don't need to engage um, because it really, it's like, it's no skin off my nose if you don't get a good grade, you know, like that's fine with me. But like outside of the classroom in the World ward, or in just simple volunteer classrooms like a Bible class, like this has to to be used to, to get people to see things and to have them engage with people and uh, that's a very helpful way of doing it we hope you've enjoyed this podcast we've enjoyed talking about these ideas and we're excited to talk about more ideas in the future um But this is going to be it for today. We are going to pick it up next week when we talk more about reading difficult books. And so if you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, we would encourage you to subscribe. And if you enjoyed it so much so that you want to give it a review on iTunes, uh, we would sure appreciate a five-star review that helps to get this out to more people. But we thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you guys next week.